All right. Welcome back to Gnosis Episode 8. Uh, blessed to have two amazing guests with me today, uh, Joseph Atwell and William Ramsey. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and uh, skip your, your bios, gentlemen, and add them in post uh, just for time's sake today. Uh, but today's discussion was going to center around Aleister Crowley and his impact on, on civilization and how we might remedy uh, the sickness and his uh, despotic actions around the globe, how they continue to play out and, and really uh, have, have created a, uh, I don't know, a pall of uh, uh, disgusting effects everywhere. And you're both uh, very well aware of his work and, and his impact. So I'm just going to let you take the floor here. Is there anything uh, right on? And this is also the first time you two gentlemen have spoken or met. So I'm, I'm glad that we could bring you together. And I'm just going to let you kind of take it away from here. Okay. Whatever who has one to talk about, I'm easy. I've listened to Joe on, uh, what was it? John Urban show, a couple of John Urban shows for sure. That was uh, Gnosis. What was his? Gnostic. Gnostic media. Gnostic media. It was a, yeah. So heard some of his stuff, but he, you guys have talked. You, you, and uh, Jan t- have talked on a variety of different subjects, right? Yeah, yeah. We did kind of a show that just was about anything that seemed interesting. You know, at the, in that week, we did a lot about um, Crowley. <clears throat> People sometimes pronounce it Crowley, but it's Crowley rhymes with holy. So, um, and I mean, I, I am really not. Uh, that much interested in in his uh, his literature, um, I just understand it in, a, in an overall context. And I don't know if uh, Bill, you're familiar with my understanding of Helen Blavatsky and of the Quattro Coronati. But I just I know see, Blavatsky. I don't know the Quattro Coronati. I don't think I've well, ever heard that word. You know, it's a. I did a show with um, uh, earlier uh, on on. Um, the theory I have concerning uh, Blavatsky and how the uh, the Nazi Party was developed by British Freemasonry using Blavatsky as the uh, initial sort of bamboozling cover to uh, um, keep away from the public the ultimate purpose of all of this. Um, I, I'll just give it in brief so you can be aware of it. Um, uh, the you know Blavatsky comes from the Quattro Coronati. That's where she got her Masonic passport uh, from John Yarker. That, I know John Yarker, yeah. Uh, That's the, where Crowley he, got inducted into uh, right, right. into Freemason. We was Yarker. Yeah, that's right. Yarker then, then uh, helped promote Crowley. But I think that's all part of the same pulse of British Freemasonry, this high-level British Freemasonry that was intent on developing the Nazi party. And Blavatsky, um, she developed... You know, the symbol, the swastika, um, the idea of Aryan supremacy, Aryan as a root race. Um, she developed the idea of the uh, political leader as Messiah, you know, and, um, and then um, she also then worked with one of her followers, uh, the Bellamy's, the Bellamy brothers, mm-hmm. to develop national socialism, which was supposedly an offshoot of her philosophy just an yeah didn't hitler have her book on his bedside table didn't he uh, have like uh... when i just the end of the little piece i'll just you can so so the bellapes then they developed the the idea of the of national socialism and they also developed for example the one-armed salute uh they they brought it out as the pledge of allegiance in the u.s which then was changed to the heart salute but at first it was just the, the nazi salute 
Um, and then uh, the money for the Nazi party comes through Montague Norman, another member of the Theosophical Society. He worked with Schrack, the German finance minister and Freemason, to develop these big lines of credit. Um, he didn't pull the trigger himself, but he developed through his family business uh, a, a, a joint financial entity called Brown Brothers Harriman. His family owns Brown Brothers and the Harriman family owned Harriman's financial group. And that was, this group was 100% skull and bones. If you look at Wikipedia for Brown Brothers Harriman, every member of the initiate group, the one that developed the money for Hitler were all part of skull and bones. And this is where the idea that Prescott Bush, you know, was a Nazi or Nazi sympathizer is because he was a Harriman associate and worked with Harriman to provide money. And they did, you know, for, for the Nazi party. The Union Bank, yeah. Yeah, but then you get into the development of the actual uh, legal party. And this again, you know, uh, Sabatendorf and uh, his crew, the group around him, were all Theosophical Society members. And then at the end, the last part was the development of Hitler himself. And this was handled by uh, Dieter Erkart. And he's the one who has the deathbed quote where he says, you know, don't don't cry for me. I'm going to have more you know, influence on Germany than any other person in history. I'm the one that gave Hitler uh, the secret doctrine and, and uh, showed him how to like access the spirits through Blavatsky. So what I say, what I say, Bill, is this, I go, look, um, this is, this is obviously a project because first of all, the Theosophical society philosophy is completely incoherent no intelligent person would be attracted to it. I mean, if you read The Secret Doctrine by Velotsky, it's just rubbish. 600 pages of just, you know, um, it's, it's just hardly even enters into like stream of consciousness sort of stuff. It's just ridiculous. So all of these people and a group, this group never was more than in its inner circle, more than a few hundred people. All of these individuals um, were member that, that produced the party were members of the Theophilical Society. And because it's disparate, because you have the money, you have the economics, uh, you have the individual Hitler, then you have uh, uh, the symbolism, you know, that Bobowski is doing. Because it's so disparate, I, the only conclusion I can draw is that there's a centrifugal energy that's pulling all of this together. Um, and I would just say that the mysticism is, uh, is to be given to Hitler as the Nazi party develops because it's just a piece of bamboozlement between the party itself and the British Freemason individuals who organize the whole thing. So that when you look into Hitler and you go deeper, people will say, oh my God, you know, he's a, a Satanist. He's a, you know, this or that, you know, that, that he has this mystical background. But the fact is the mysticism is all just rubbish. It's just a political cover. Blavatsky came from uh, Manzini. She was at the Battle of Montana, where the Freemason army led by Manzini battled the papacy. You know, they had these big battles. And you can see why they selected her for the project. She was hit with two bullets and took a saber blow to the arm. Now, this seems like it may just be an exaggerated story. But in fact, she was inspected by someone who had experience with war wounds um, and he said, yeah, this is absolutely real. This, this woman had gone through really severe war injuries in her battle. So she was a mad dog, Freemason advocate 
Um, Manzini brings what's called Memphis and Mizraim. You're familiar with that? Memphis this, and Mizraim, yeah. yeah it's, it's 97, focus, 99 degrees. Yeah, this hocus pocus, Freemasonry, it's more bamboozlement, mysticism. He brings it to um, the Quattro Coronati, and they, they create this separate project that has on one side Blavatsky and the other one would be uh, Crowley. Crowley is just um, more bamboozlement, more, um, I mean, the general theme here is to destroy European culture and Christian culture. That's what they're really trying to do. And so they recognize that um, the sexual restraint needed for the production of family and, of course, for then ethnicity is, a, is the area they can attack. And this is why you have, you know, Freud, um, the authoritarian personality, science, uh, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll culture. I mean, all of these things are uh, just designed um, to, um, to uh, dissipate the energy uh, needed to create family and ethnicity, and specifically the sexual restraint. And that's what, uh, that was Crowley's um, uh, part of the puzzle. He comes from the same group that, uh, you know, spun off Blavatsky, but it was slightly different, different project, but it was the same overall goal. It's just another, uh, someone who has absolutely intellectual rubbish as a philosophy, but then has a, as a mechanical aspect of what he's doing, something that is really destructive to uh, European Christian culture. Yeah, he, he uh, integrated some of Blavatsky's stuff into kind of the Lima. I think it was yeah. her writing was The Voice in the Silence. She was actually ethnically German. I think she had some kind of Vaughn in her name. I think she's Converso. She's from where? Converso. Oh. I don't think she's legitimate. I would like to see a, a DNA test of her. Um, I know her background as it's proposed, but I, I think that there's a lot of Inside of Freemasonry, there's a lot of converso genetics, you know, people, mm. families that um, converted during the period, during the Middle Ages, but retained some aspect of their Judaism and their, you know, religion or tradition. And they were more easily to gather up into, um, into the Freemason project. I think this is the one that uh, Yarker signed. This is Crowley's 33rd degree. I think that this is wow. It's somewhere around there. It's out there. But you can see John Yarker's name. Right That's there amazing. Yeah. I didn't even know that existed. That's incredible. Yeah, no. He's around. I mean, you can see him in all the regalia, all the Masonic yeah. regalia. Yarker's around. But, yeah, Dukes, the guys all knew each other. Crowley was very much, you know, in the in the occult current. He ran into, forgot which the lady, some other kind of known occultist. So um, him as part of this kind of project, I definitely agree with you. I think that. He was Haiti Christianity, so I think that he would yeah. do anything to break down family, sexual license, all that stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I, he was in. You have to remember too; he was in Germany right there at the Weimar Republic, right there right. at the end before Hitler took power. So he's in very strange places at very strange times. The U.S. World War One, uh, when Mussolini marched on on Rome, I think it was twenty three. He was there, so he probably was up to no good. In, in Germany one way or another. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, these people are are hard to actually pin down, you know, sort of you know, like you're in a court trial. Um, but I would say that 
as as an explanatory power, you know, the idea that they're part of this project, it's it is clearly the strongest, you know, way of understanding them. And you have to remember that every spook, every agent of an intelligent operation has to have a false identity. I mean, that's it's just axiomatic, right? So so when you look at Crowley and Blavatsky, of course, you know, there is the overt face that they represent with their philosophy or, you know, whatever. But you have to assume that that's just a spook. You know, that's just what they're doing to, um, you know, be involved in their project. I think so. I think people have, you know, uh, analyze Crowley as just a pure intel agent. But I think that he kept his, he was really uh, dyed in the wool uh, occultist his whole life, all the way to the end. I don't think he ever gave up on it. He was still writing magic without tears and doing his magical stuff all the way till the end in 47. So he didn't ever, he was clearly an asset. Like he always got let back into England whenever he wanted to, whatever his forays, he got kicked out of Italy, France. And I don't know if they kicked him out of Germany, but um, he was always allowed back in. So he was always an asset he was always sending correspondence and missives and stuff like that. But yeah, he was, I think that he really was true to form. I think he really wanted to be, uh, the greatest magician that ever lived, and that's what he dedicated his life to. I, I don't think it was a cover. Yeah, I, he was not a dabbler. He was not definitely not a dabbler. No, <clears throat> I, I look at the. Have you ever heard of my of the concept I developed on uh, the term the lifetime actor? No, what, what do you mean? Um, basically, you know, it's it is known that Freemasonry um, would give projects to individuals that they would basically become something that that they they saw was useful this to create a personality um there was a i think it was i'm not bach but maybe it was one of the famous musicians that are composers that actually wrote about this but i just see like uh for example um uh, say tim larry so you know like you you wonder okay so is he sincere Right. I mean, his, his effect is so destructive. Um, and I have a good friend of mine who lived with Leary and who's writing about him. Um, and he believes that Leary was, you know, legitimate and tortured. He recognizes that Leary was a CIA asset, obviously. But he said that he, he fought against that somehow. And I make the case that no, I don't believe that. Um, I just don't see any resistance on his part to the um, performance he's giving. So I would say that uh, Leary simply, you know, when um, Huxley uh, hired him to become the LSD Pied Piper, he took on the role 100% and maintained it all the way to his death. He never broke character. And I actually knew someone who lived with Leary during the last months of his life and I could I can verify that. So the Hollywood Hills, right? Didn't he like have like a a wake while he was still alive while he was dying? Yeah, yeah. And um, he has cancer. And uh, uh, my friend, I'm I'm sure he won't mind me. Robert Forte, who was living with him at the time, um, you know, gave me like very. You know, he said he felt that Larry is completely sincere. But I would argue that. You know, it's the question is, what do you mean by sincerity? I don't think um, that he was unaware of how destructive he was, what he was doing was. 
but I think that he was sincere in his um, faith and and allegiance to the secret society that is that is operating against uh, European culture and Christianity. And so that's when, you know, when as far as uh, Crowley, I mean, I wouldn't really have a clue to the level of you know, where he was in terms of his belief in, in mysticism. Um, I don't think, for example, that Bobosky is sincere. I think <laughs> that he is just creating bamboozlement, a kind of s- mystical separation between um, the Nazi party and, and the creators of it, you know, the British Freemason creators of it, um, so that the public won't become aware of it, you know, but they won't become aware of that fact and then question like our current political situation. I mean, the, the key element that the secret society has as far as the control over us is that we don't question the sincerity of the political class. You know, we, we believe the stories they tell us, you know, that they are sincere in this, you know, that, that Trump really is, you know, for MAGA, and right. Hillary Clinton is really a dedicated feminist and loves minorities. Right. I just see these things as, you know, these are just aspects of dramatic theater. And um, Right. Well, that would fall right in line with what Albert Pike said, which is we will give you your heroes. We will provide you with those. So, yeah, uh, yeah, masonry, all of the prime ministers of England for the last 400 years or whatever have been some form of Masonic in this show. Yeah. So that tells you a lot about the British Empire. And there's a really good book on the British Empire. I forgot the title of it, but it's about the empire and masonry. How important the Masonic secret society was to the growth of the empire. Like it was an integral part of communication and the way people. And I think that actually that that Michael Caine movie where they go to Afghanistan is about they're both Masons. Yeah, they're like the man who would be king. Man who would be king. Yeah, that was written by Kipling, yeah, who was go. a purported you know, Scottish Anglican, but summered with the Rothschilds, right. you know, in, in their African compound, you know. And so you have to wonder, well, what is what is centrifugal here? What what keeps these people together? If you there's a really interesting picture of Churchill when he was in the Boer War, he was captured and he's making the Masonic sign of distress. I'll see if I can find it online. Yeah. He's literally standing well, there with his feet like in a, in a well, you triangle. know, what's interesting is that Churchill um his family were part, well, of course, they were grandmaster Freemasons, or one of them was, but they're also um, part of the, what I call the proto-Zionists. You know, you, uh, you know, you look at the Nazi party and you go, gee, it's a little odd that it's actually British Freemasonry developing, you know, this organization. But then when you look at uh, Zionism, I mean, there wasn't any real Jews that were part of the political movement that became Israel up until the time when you had Herschel. And this was 50 years after the project got going. It got going with British Freemasonry. It was, um, uh, you know, Shafeberry and uh, Lord Palmerston. They were the ones who claimed, they made public reference to the idea that now is the time for the Jews to return to the homeland. 1840. Right. This is when it's in part of the, the Ottoman Empire. These are supposedly Christians, right? And if you've read the New Testament, you would not understand that there should be a time when the Jews return. It doesn't follow naturally out of the 
the logic of the of the text, right? So where does this idea come from? So the proto-Zionists were created the project, and for 50 years, they were the ones who actually developed it. They were the ones who destroyed what's called Reform Judaism. They transformed it. Reform Judaism was very powerful at this time among religious Jews, and it was the idea that um, that Israel could become multicultural, that other perspectives would be allowed in and the whole world could be made more enlightened through the participation. But it was completely anti-Zionist because that was opposite to the idea. There's, I would recommend reading Abraham Geiger if you're curious about these rabbinical guy. Very uh, beautiful ideas about, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, sharing the world, right? Well, the, the proto-Zionist actually hired individuals to go and to change all of the rabbinical thinking, all the little rabbiniates throughout the world so that they would become Zionists. Um, and they had the Rothschild money supporting them. So they were able to actually do this. And by the time that you have, um, you know, Herzl, 1890, 1900, they pretty much have transformed over the last 60 years, they've transformed Judaism from uh, the um, reform Judaism to Zionism. Um, but Jews weren't involved in the process. I mean, it's just amazing if you actually look at the details of this. This It was the British Freemasonry. If you look at the original sort of uh, like original Zionist literature, it's Churchill, Churchill's relatives. He's the one who's writing about, you know, we, they're down there doing surveys and uh, in in. Uh, in Judea, trying to figure out where the place is. At this point, they didn't even know what where it was. Actually, they knew where Jerusalem was. They had no idea about you know exactly what. It, so they did the royal family, British royal family, the Grand Masters of Freemasonry. They go down there. They do all the surveys that would all then be used eventually by the uh, the Zionists when they went to remove the Palestine Palestinians from from the area. Um, but this project. Is is very much involved with the Quattro Coronati, the same guys that spin out uh, Blavatsky and uh, and Crowley. Um, if you look at Charles Warren, he was one of the original founders of Quattro Coronati. Now he was part of the you know high level Freemasons. He was instantly the guy, the mayor of London, who handled the Jacka Ripper debacle. He he, he saw that covered it up, maybe. Yeah, cover, exactly, covers it up. So, so he becomes, Warren then is a massive proto-Zionist. He's writing books about, we've got to get the Jews back to Israel. You know, he's just obsessed with it. Um, and, and then he becomes part of the Quattro Coronati, the seven founding members, which then goes on to, um, to promote the Nazi party and, and uh, the degenerate mysticism of Crowley. Um, and at the same time, from the other direction, they're like funding... Uh, Herzl and getting, um, you know, uh, a kind of active uh, religious Zionism going. It looks to me, Bill, if you ask me what happens, I would say that they maneuvered uh, Europe to destroy as much as they could of the German race and maneuver uh, Jews to move down to Judea. You know, um, that's why at the beginning of the Nazis, Hitler was the biggest Zionist you ever saw. 
when when he took over, he was actually lauded by Jews for his the funding of moving uh, emigrating Jews to uh, Palestine. Um, and but then, of course, you know, you, you have World War II and this all disappears. But I mean, my honest opinion is that that's what happened to Europe, is that you had these great forces that were able to um, create the Nazi party, which was strictly created for the to destroy uh, the German people with, and at the same time um, to make Europe such a hellhole that uh, the Jews would have a reason to move down to Israel. So I think, I mean, I know that that's, you know, like a like a broad stroked historical concept, but that's my honest opinion. I don't think it's any, you know, surprise that the state of Israel was founded after World War II. I mean, it's natural follow off following the uh, Holocaust or Shoah or whatever you want to call it. So whether it was all structured that way, I don't, I'm not really sure. I think uh, the Nazis definitely and Hitler got out of way out of control and uh, pushed, pushed to the, you know, to have a disaster. World War II was a disaster. So whether it was all intended and how much his financing was and I mean the start of the Nazi party is just redolent with occultism and uh, a lot of homosexuality, kind of strange, strange words. Hitler's background is a bit sketchy. They destroyed all his records records, but uh Yeah. He might be a clandestine Rothschild is what I've heard. I've heard that too. I think he I think even personally in my research he was a quarter Jewish. So from his dad's side, his dad's half Jewish. Huh. Shukel Gruber, that was his real family name. They used to tease him about it in the uh, in the German press. Wow. But yeah, I did a full thing read through. It used to be called the, uh, was, what's it called? The, the Lanning, uh, I think it was the Lanning. No, I can't remember what the report was, but it was a report that was put together of his background. And uh, they got him pretty good i think they understood it and when i think it became the mind of adolf hitler's a follow-on book but it was too so it was really a group of psychiatrists who put together a profile of hitler it's very interesting i read it you can find it on william ramsey investigates uh, i read the whole thing into the record Excellent. but yeah yeah the thule society he was hitler was always kind of uh he said he was a pagan 1929 so i would say uh you know, you can look up Ostara, too. That was the literature that he was reading, which is kind of pagan mysticism, racial mysticism. So he was always kind of involved in that. I, I Interesting. That. That Eckert's statement is as, you know, believable that, that uh, he was, you know, basically uh, channeling Blavatsky to Hitler. Um, he makes the claim anyway that, uh, you know, and, and, and this fits into that pattern that I gave where, every single aspect of the Theosophical Society um, or, or of the Nazi party, it comes from the Theosophical Society. Anti-Semitism was very critical for the Nazi party and, and to move the Jews to uh, back to Israel. And in the 20s, the thing that was really animating it, uh, anti-Semitism was at kind of a low tide at that point in Europe. But then the protocols of the elders of Zion were discovered and uh, were circulated, uh, particularly in Russia, but also in in, uh, in Germany, and uh, and they sort of had a strong cultural effect. They were discovered by Julinka, who was uh, Helen Blavatsky's personal secretary. Now that seems a little odd to me, 
Um, now, particularly when you look at that overall pattern, right, of all of these different aspects of leading up to the Nazi party, I mean, how, how, do you, how would you get this as well, you know, also in there? But the thing that is so funny about this, I don't know if you, you're familiar with this, but so after the war, uh, you know, obviously the governments are very, um, you know, philo-Judaic, you know, they're, they're trying to support Israel. And, and so they have to remove the protocols or debunk it. So some intrepid literary researcher discovers in a library in Turkey the book that uh, it was based upon. They were able to find that there were whole sections of it that had been copied. And this helped give the idea that the protocols were a forgery. But I bet you can't guess who was the person who found this book, which debunked the protocols. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. His name is Alan Dulles. Get out of town. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow, no, stuff you can't make up. Can't now, make up. Dulles discovered it just, he was, uh, you know, somehow in a bookstore in, in Istanbul. There you go. So the whole thing is ridiculous. And, um, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I look at the, the mysticism just in a general sense. And I know that there are people within that context that take it sincerely and, and are, they live their whole life with it. But as I see it in the broad stroke, you know, that I'm kind of looking at, I just look at it as bamboozlement. It, it makes people think poorly so that they are easier to control. It is, it is a camouflage to the actual historical inputs, you know, of, of a process. Be, Keep that at, up for a sec. Well, yeah, I want to explain that to yeah, you. Yeah, you look at Hitler and you go as far as the mysticism, you go, well, there it is. You don't need to go the next step back. Um, and then, of course, it's also, it, it, it promotes degeneracy. You know, I mean, I look at uh, Crowley's stuff in the same way I look at Sigmund Freud's, uh, you know, um, or, or Herbert Marcuse, you know, Eros and Civilization. I mean, this stuff is absolute intellectual rubbish. It makes, there's no science, certainly no empirical, you know, kind of replicable, uh, you know, experiments that one could ever do to these ideas. But they're all there to destroy um, sexual restraint, which is, you know, pornography, ultimately. Um, if you get a chance, Bill, have you ever read uh, The Authoritarian Personality? Authoritarian Personality. Authoritarian Personality. I think that's the best description of the overall plan that we're dealing with. Um, you know, it's, it was set up by members of the Frankfurt School, by um, Adorno, Horkenheimer, um, and uh, it, it just creates all this pseudo-psychological kind of, it, it gives scales, and you have the fascism scale, uh, and then ethnocentric, authoritarian, in other words, the things that you would need to have a successful father and family are defined as neurotic, and then it's and then it, you get you have tests that they create that will evaluate you know how are, how fascist prone you are how how prone you are to be ethnocentric, but at the end of it they really kind of lift the kimono for a second. And I always re reference people. It's chapter twenty three of the authoritarian personality because you can just see it. Um, and this the authoritarian personality was developed by uh, American Jewish Committee. It wasn't, uh, you know, that's, that's who's funding it and bringing it out. And chapter, uh, sub and chapter 23, they say, look, you know, we need to organize all of the psychological sciences, all of them, 
to overcome resistance to the, our program here. And in, in fascism, they use, you know, authoritarian propaganda, but we need to use um, Eros as the basis for our propaganda. So you read that and then read Marcuse's Eros and Civilization, where he talks about no sexual restraint. In fact, you know, Marcuse even goes into no hygiene, right? I mean, it's just completely degenerate. But this was, you're not old enough, but I mean, for me, Eros and Civilization was like, you know, the guidebook because that was the most important intellectual piece for the hippies, you know, the, those of us who could read. The justification, right. And, and Marcuse is part of the Frankfurt School, the same organization that, you know, is bringing out uh, the uh, the authoritarian personality. So, I mean, there it is. But that was how they were going to stop any resurgent yeah. What they called fascism, what they thought was the original. What they defined fascism, what they did was they defined the things that created a strong and healthy European culture. They were defined as neurotic, as fascism, That's as ethnocentrism. Now, now bear in mind, bear in mind, none of this, the science quotes, has right, science, applied yeah. to the ethnocentric uh, Jews who were forming Israel. And of course win. not, because that wasn't the attempt. That wasn't what yeah, the attempt was. The authoritarian personality of Marcuse are both intellectual Jews whose family members probably were murdered. Every Jew has somebody who's murdered. So they were trying to figure out. There was actually a known, the Milgram experiment. All that stuff was based upon people's harrowing, nightmarish experiences in World War II. That goes back through this occult theme. Um, but they were trying to figure out a way to not have, have it happen again. And they so they their analysis. I don't agree with it, but that's was the basis. Is like how do you stop these kind of marching, jackbooted uh, events? Go back to that picture, can you? I want to. I'll, sure, I just this is to, an interesting. It ties into Crowley. And I just Hitler. wanted to interject one thing real quick because uh, you had an amazing presentation you did with Sean McCann on uh, eyes wide shut and the symbolism. Uh, you know what? I'll dig it up. I'll go back to the one you were you were describing here. Uh, from your documentary. But it's an interesting fantastic. point because it ties in with Crowley and Hitler. So this is the international. Absolutely. This is the swastika. It was okay back then. It doesn't have a, such a negative connotation as it does today. But Crowley's writing under the Master Theorion. That was his fake name. Um, Lewis Wilkinson would, would talk at his funeral. And Arthur Schnitzler is the author of Traum Novell, which is the basis of Eyes Wide Shut, which Kubrick was always trying to get to Traum Novell. When you look at the history of Kubrick, he wanted to do an Eyes Wide Shut type film based on Trauma Novel for like 30 years, his whole career. So it really was the kind of icing on the cake or the cherry on top of the old Sunday was, was Eyes Wide Shut. But the International was run by a guy by the name of Virek, who was like Crowley was manipulating him and then like in a kind of uh, intel thing and, and planting stories and doing, Crowley was doing really ridiculous stuff in New York at the time. What is Virek's one of, he was half German, half English. One of his first interviews in 1923 of a new political figure was Adolf Hitler. So you can go look at that. So wow. one of the earlier, so there's a direct tie between Crowley and Hitler. And Hitler, Crowley eventually after Hitler was fled Germany or whatever after 1945, uh, said before Hitler was, I am. And their political outlooks were very similar. They had a very uh, you know, slave state, uh, master race. You know, triumph of good, triumph of will. So there's a very considerate overlaps. And I've covered that in my book, Children of the Beast. You can read that. And Hitler had other books. It's not just he was influenced by Vavatsky. I have a book by, I uh, forgot the author now, but Hitler was underlining all that stuff in the, his library that was 
preserved. Not all of his stuff was preserved, but the library that's at Brown University has these other magical books that are like magic and theory and practice. Crowley might have actually lifted that from another guy whose name was uh, Shirtle. Shirtle was his name. And he sent a signed copy of his book on like magic. And it has all kinds of interesting quotes like, you know, the possessed man has the, the destiny of the world at his hands, all kinds of weird Hitlerian type statements, but uh, speaking of possession, it's interesting because Joe, I don't, I don't, I've heard you kind of uh, uh, disparage Blavatsky as being, you know, into metaphysics and and speaking of the spiritual dimension. But what what William just described, you know, this possession, it seems to be part uh, exactly what's happening when people go into these rituals and these secret societies is that they are opening themselves up for some type of possession. Now, of course, you know. That that's something I was always curious about. Your position, Joe. Do you do you have a spiritual uh, perspective on life, or are you more strictly uh, pragmatic, you know, uh, five senses only type of individual? And um, and William, if you have any anything you'd like to add regarding the Christian perspective on on demonic possession, because it seems to be, you know, the, the their ability to dominate us through media would be a form of possession. Could be could could be considered that. Yeah, it's a no no. You don't mess with spirits or anything like that or any type of soothsaying. It's the same as the Old Testament view, is the New Testament view. And, uh, yeah, you don't have the, I mean, any Christian is not really, it's not consistent with hardcore materialism that there's, you know, five senses and that's it. Or, or Darwinism or Marxism or anything like that. So I reject all those kind of philosophies. Yeah, I, I look at, you know, uh, basically um, the development of the technique of social control. Um, you know, you look at MK Ultra. Okay, so they you look at the projects. There are all of these different ways they're trying to figure out how to control populations. I think that mysticism, you know, there's two sides to it. One is there are legitimate mystics, right? I mean, people who have this extraordinary spiritual connection and have visions, um, but there are also people who use this as a way to um, for social control. So, in in my analysis, I don't really study too much the legitimate mystical experience. I am more interested in it, in just how it is used as a way of social control. And I'm not, and it is. Negating, I'm not negating the other approach to it. I'm just saying. I've got enough on my plate trying sure. to understand the Nazi party. Um, so when I, when I would look at Crowley, for example, um, I try to look at him in the broad stroke of, well, how does he fit in to the transformation of, uh, well, Christian culture, European culture that takes place between 1850 and the present day. So that's how I try to understand him. And that's how I would, I, and I look at mysticism in that light. And, and it's, I, I would never negate mystics per se. I mean, I think it's actually probably, a, you know, kind of an avant-garde of, of human psychic, you know. But I, I just am not, that is not the, the subject that I'm trying to understand. Yeah, Crowley said I, in my book, Prophet of Evil, my first book, he was talking to a guy called uh, Clifford Bax, and he said, we are at the end of Christianity and the new era, era will be Crowleyanity. So he had a religious kind of a overthrow, aeonic change. And Hitler did too. The Thousand Year Reich is aeonic change. He yeah. wanted to create a new era. Well, all of, I mean, Freud does. Right? 
And, and uh, I, I would say go back and look at the uh, Hungarian Soviet, because remember um, uh, Gregor Luchas, who is the, who's running the education and cultural indoctrination for the Hungarian Soviet, he then founds the Frankfurt School, which then produces, I mean, you know, is involved, certainly in, in produces uh, uh, the authoritarian personality and Adorno, and, all that stuff. Promoting Freud and these things. But if you look at what he was doing, and this is, you know, 1919, this is, you know, 30 years before anything, you know, that is remotely can be described as a Holocaust is occurring. In 1919, um, Luchas, uh, whose real name was Lowenstein, and uh, his, the uh, leader, Bella Kuhn, whose real name was Cohn, <laughs> you know, for some reason they changed their names, but they were running the Hungarian Soviet, and they had an education program which in the morning was basically sexual degeneracy. They were trying to create uh, as, you know, to break the idea of marriage down as property, and that the new Marxist individual would have a completely free-flowing sexuality, homosexuality, bestiality. It's all irrelevant. It's all, this is, this is freedom, and this is going away from the property structure of, of a family and marriage. Now, that was the morning, but it's more important uh, what they did in the afternoons with the kids, because this was all the reading of fairy tales, and there's an actual letter between Luchas and one of his, uh, his, uh, the, his bureaucrats where they were describing the success of the program because they say that, well, these kids are so communist that they don't even relate any longer to the concept of their being human. Wow. That they're perfectly comfortable with the idea of, of we're just like animals. Now, <laughs> just for a little bonbon... Now think about Walt Disney and the Mouseketeers. Yes, right? <laughs> thirty years later. So, so um, these concepts and, and the attack has, in my opinion, has been worked out. You know, long before even World War One, they they had studied these things and had come up with a plan for the how to tear apart um, uh, Christian uh, culture. Yeah, Crowley's outlook wasn't much different. So he believed in total freedom. So part of that was the sexual kind of freedom. And I think that he would be right in line with the Marxist and trying to use that yeah. as a means of overthrowing, you know, current culture and society. Yeah. yeah so are- I, when I look at these things, I'm always trying to weave them into an overall pattern. And it's, it's a, it's a weakness of analytic approach because, you know, you, you would tend to have a bias of creating the pattern but I also think at the end, you come up with a good explanatory power for the whole process. You know, you can kind of. Right. Like, like the, over the decades, the decades yeah. long process. I mean, you look at Disney, right? Disney is, is uh, in his 20s. He's a member of, a, of an organization called Uplifting Lucifer. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. It, it's in Santa Monica Canyon. Um, Frank Baum, who is the author of The Wizard of Oz and. Uh, H.R. Haldeman's father are also founding members, and they're all, you know, organized around this principle of celebrating the uplifting of Lucifer. Um, so, you know, the idea that there is a satanic and hidden component of the 
you know, of people who are involved in the kind of transformation of our culture is to me, this is just far-fetched. It's obviously there. And so then when you get to Hollywood in general and you look at the degeneracy of, of the, of the productions, you know, you get to now the current um, transgender agenda that it has. It's all easy to understand in the context that I'm suggesting. At, at least that's how I see it. I think there's a ton of overlap between you, your gentleman's work and uh, in particular, you know, uh, I found the swastika diagram from before in William's documentary on Aleister Crowley and 9-11. Uh, what's the, the exact title, William, again? Prophet my of full Evil? title of my first book is uh, Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order. Which Joe, you got to see his work, and and uh, oh, William, yeah, I, yeah, I am absolutely. And William, well, I, want, I've, I've... I want to give you a little bonbon though. Um, <laughs> uh, I just had this thought the other day, and I thought I'd share with you. Well, you know, did, do you know why they picked nine one one as the date for this event? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I think eleven is very important to them. Very right, important well, to Crowley. Let, let me give you a, what I think is the actual reason. It's because. Um, 9-1-1 is the date of the destruction of the temple. Both the first and second temple were both destroyed on 9-11. So, so at, at Tisha above, this is how they, they characterize it. Um, so now remember that, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have the, what is it? The Solomon brothers, right? Well, I mean, remember House of Solomon, the temple, the first temple, you know, the one that uh, nine was the first 911. So, and then if you look at the timing of it, I think that, you know, the 2000 years of Christian culture and now uh, Tisha B'Av, which is 911, um, is uh, they're trying to represent that they're going to be have a, have a replacement now of, uh, of that culture. I mean, this is why they chose that date. So Tish B'Av, they're still, that's the Jewish kind of like fasting day, right? It's the day, it's the most, it's the day where they, they celebrate um, tragedy um, because it was the date on, on two occasions that the temple was destroyed in, in 70 CE and then, uh, you know, like 500 years earlier, the, you know, the Cyrus or whatever it was, the Babylonians, you know, came in and crushed it. So the, the Jews represent two specific dates of uh, the temple being destroyed on the same day, two, two different episodes. I think that the one that um, occurs in uh, 70 CE is obviously artificial. I mean, they, they just arrange their dating. Uh, Josephus is the only historian of that, if you ever read the guy. He recorded it occurred on 9-11, and I think it's obviously... Um, he was just making a pseudo kind of you know, indication that the Romans were operating with the power of divinity because this was just, just so happens the day that they destroyed the Jewish temple, um, which just happened to be the exact day when the original first temple was destroyed. Right. So the original Av is the what? The 11th day of the calendar, the 11th yeah, month. Yeah. In other Jewish words, calendar, it is right? September 11th. It's, it, they were, but, but remember, you're reading from left to right in Hebrew. So, right, 11, right, right. so anyway, 911 is uh, it Tisha B'Av. Now, incidentally, this is a completely original insight. I mean, you won't find other people talking about this. I, I'm familiar with it because I, I'm, you know, I know 
I, I spent a lot of time studying both Judaism and Josephus, so I know these dates, right? So I just happened to be aware of it. Um, but I also caught the fact that it's the Solomon building, which is just, a, you know, these are, this is typology. It's not verbatimism, but they are representing it symbolically for the cognoscentes who, who can enjoy, you know, their control over historical events. Uh, and they're basically mocking the Romans uh, who, who did the same thing with their recording of the dates of the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. The twin, twin towers were built as a temple kind of complex. The, the great spherical caryatid is a temple-like yeah. oh, uh, yes. thing. This caryatid refers to a statuary that holds up a temple. I mean, it's yeah. right there in the center. It's that thing. Well, that picture's pretty good. A... You, can see the, uh, you can see the black monolith there overlooking the whole event. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. William, yeah. I'd love I'd love to do a show with you on Fight Club. That's uh yeah, sure. I've, I've met Chuck Palahniuk before. Uh, yeah, that 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 film shaped a lot of my uh, early identity uh, in a manner similar to Jason uh, Horsley, you know, describing his love affair of Hollywood. And in hindsight, you know, to see the predictive programming with the spherical carry added, blown up into the Starbucks. The Starbucks logo is Melusine, which is Baphomet, and and so that sigil is is replete throughout the film. And if you think about the landscape since, right, right, that's right. There's a picture of a Starbucks cup all throughout the film, so it's probably just <laughs> they knew the dark meaning of the whole thing, right? They did. Every they did. Has a Starbucks I didn't cup. know that. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. Oh, it's great. Right the smiley face is in there too, all over the place. They're right in our oh, face. Yes. You know, yeah. Oh, Joe, you've got. I mean, William's done so much amazing research. He's got a whole series on these these uh, these serial murders revolving around the smiley face killers he's written two books on it two documentaries two documentaries yeah phenomenal and uh absolutely you know it, it's like they're still going on chicago right now they're just drop people are dropping in the river like crazy one a week oh that's crazy yeah they just had a kid just like uh, recently i just had a thing out let's see oh my goodness Seamus gray that's classic thing left a bar late at night disappeared so so there's so this this kind of thrill kill cult aspect of Satanism is still happening, and um, you know I got blocked earlier by uh, I guess he's a Satanist. He probably maybe described himself as a felomite, uh, Jason Louv on Twitter. I just asked him, you know, you know, he's he's got pinned his image is like do what thou wilt, the whole decree, and I just said, you know, so yeah, well, and he says deal with it, you know, that's the caption. So I wrote him, I was like, well, you know, do you condone? Crowley's, you know, rape and murder of children and human sacrifice. And he just blocks me. And so, you know, the he has a very, very uh, deep cult pedigree. He wrote yes. and rewrote for a guy who I covered in Children of the Beast, Genesis P. Orridge, Damien right. Eccles' godmother. His book is The Psychic Bible. He edited that, Lube did. And he's a huge Eccles pal. He was at Eccles' that. most recent hearing in Arkansas probably two or three months ago. So, Oh wow! Be careful of that guy. Yeah, I will. Thank you. And you know, uh, they're out. Yeah, he had Libra seventy-seven. I think he, I showed. I think I saw that on uh, Twitter. No man, no god, but man. But this is the most recent dead dead guy right here. He'll probably show up in the water in about a month or two, or two or three weeks. But there's there's probably ten. I'm, pro I'm prepping to do a show, so keep an eye on my uh, on my podcast because I'm going to do a show of all the recent deaths. There's probably. 15 in the last two months insane that's great yeah you know it, it'd be something if you know i i know there's a lot of uh 
antipathy towards Trump. Uh, and, you know, I, I, what I appreciate about this conversation is that we all have our own independent perspectives and we don't feel the need to belittle or step over someone else because we may disagree because we're having a great conversation. And that's, that's the ethos I hope to present in all conversations. And so if Jason Louv wanted to come on and defend Crowley, I would, I would let him. This is America, freedom of speech. And of course he won't, but the idea is that, you know, we can, we can share so much and hopefully do something to eradicate this type of pernicious influence where we have, you know, outright Satanists sacrificing people left and right, or at least William much respect to you because, you know, I used to go out bar hopping and, you know, I, you know, you hear these stories and you realize this could be anyone you love, any of your loved ones. And these predators are out there and to be forewarned is to be forearmed. <coughs> Thank you. Thank forewarned you. and forearmed. That's very well said. Yes. Yes. Warned, warned. Yeah. This happened. There was a guy on um, TikTok telling this whole story about how he's in Chicago late at night. Somebody drove up to him. Hey, you need a ride? You want a ride? Come on, get in with a girl. So it's like that's mm. what's scary. Is like they, uh, in my opinion, the people who are doing these acts, they don't fit into the normal kind of like serial killer phenomenon that you see on TV, where it's just like some crazy middle aged guy. Yeah. Something very strange is happening. So you got to really be careful. Absolutely. It's been happening Especially. for a while. I mean, it died down over COVID, but everything kind of did. So now they're yeah. back. Very now, strange. What I try to do when I, I I focus on the, you know, the idea of do, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Um, that concept is, you know, at one point, you know, you had sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and, of course, all of the Crowleyan influence and all of this. But my point is, is that at this point, it should be clear to anyone and everyone that it doesn't work, that when you get rid of uh, cultural and sexual restraint, you end up with a debased uh, and isolated uh, culture. Yes. Right? I mean, it, 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 when, when, they, when they sold us the workers paradise of, you know, of no restraint and, uh, you know, do without wilt is the whole of the law. In the 60s, to my generation, it was believable, particularly if you were on drugs. You know, it was very believable. Right. Um, now, in hindsight, you can see that the people who followed that, you know, dictum most clearly have had the most miserable, isolated lives. And so miserable, yeah. at this point, I think you can make uh, a very clear argument about the value of family, marriage, relationship, and ethnicity. Um in, in light of the destruction that the uh, licentious um, philosophy produced, right? In other words, we didn't have that. We, didn't, we, we just looked at a really healthy kind of middle-class culture we were growing up in. Everything was, seems stable, maybe a little boring. So when you know, these ideas came forward, we were just wide open to them. But now I just think you have, you know, you can point to the effects Right. How many people went insane in the 60s? How many families were like half of the people that I knew? Yeah, a lot of people went literally crazy from too much drugs. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really talk about it. It's kind of like, oh, you know, Bob just didn't come out right. No, Bob's brain got fried, like literally fried. Yeah. They swept all that under the table, but there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are victims of the drugs who never really lived a full intellectual life because of the effects. Absolutely. I mean, it was in my circle. I had three or four people who were, who were institutionalized as a result. 
Wow. Yeah, no, there, there was a disaster, and the family relationships sure. were a disaster. It just the sixties. That was really Crowley's birth of the child. That's when yeah. the age of Horus was supposed to realize. That's what he said sometime after his existence. And there were people to institute that, and it just wasn't that great. It was the era of freedom, so-called freedom and libertinism, and all that stuff. It didn't, uh, it didn't pan out like they thought it would. And I think it was really a revolution against a lot of. Christian Christian tradition. There's a lot of other elements involved in that, but uh, yeah, the yeah. 60s. In general, was, the, the they were bamboozled. Yeah. Um, the, it's a religious I, bamboozling, right? It's like yeah, a, they were just bamboozled. bamboozled. They were they were led down a path to a place where um, they were weaker and had a, a less uh, quality of life, and they were politically easy to control. I mean, the, this is. This is really what's happening, just step by step by step until you get to the point we are today where I don't really think there is much political, um, you know, impact from the, much, yeah. from the part of the middle class. We, we, we just sit and watch it take place. Um, and obviously the ethnicity is just being torn apart. Um, and so many people are living lives of isolation. And what is, of course, the family production and, and uh, birth demographics of all this, you know? So I think now we're at a point where we can say, you know, whatever you want to make of this, you know, or who, who, whatever their motivation was, it's irrelevant. As a social philosophy, it's absolutely destructive. I and totally then, agree. And then you don't even need to go into, you know, like analysis like I'm producing. You just can see the result of what they have achieved, and it's all destruction. Yes. The long-term, decade-after-decade yeah. consequence, yeah. yeah it's absolutely. a disaster. I know a lot of families got divorced after the 60s. Just all kinds of stuff happened, like, into the 70s. And it was just a disaster. You know, it's funny. Like, I, people will say they criticize, like, the 50s, right? The women don't have uh, power or whatever. They have different ways of criticizing it. And I say, you know something? On the block I lived, there was, like, 30 homes. And they all had a relationship inside each home that could produce children. Every house had that. How many relationships do you know that have done that? What is, what is your ratio of, of that kind of production? Because Oof. they just don't have awareness of people who have lived like that. Very, very few. Very few. They're a small fraction. You have the pornographic male in his 50s and 60s in a single bar trying to hook up and a single mom. Both of those existences are absolutely miserable so my, my point is, I don't mean to be long-winded, but we just don't even have to sell any longer that the, the people who brought this about were evil. We can just point to the effects of, the, of effects, what right. and say, look, this is garbage. You don't want to live like that. We need to return to the, the, the structures that made life worth living. Absolutely. Great. Yes. A lot of people are trying to go back to nature. They want to go emulate the uh, Amish or something like that. And can't really blame them because you can probably just live off the system. You can't, the system can't grift off you if you produce your own food, if you're in a stable relationship, uh, you can get your own drinking water. You can actually denude the system of its power. The beast system gets weaker and weaker the more you feed yourself healthy food and stuff like that. Yeah, so we have to, brother, yeah. I mean, I've got like five raised beds, a fruit orchard, uh, my own water and, uh, and honeybees. Excellent. Um, and I live you know, in a reasonably affluent neighborhood where at one time I was regarded as completely eccentric. 
<laughs> now I'm a consultant. Excellent. I can see the effects of the toxicity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can see just the, the effects on humanity. Yeah. Really, if you look at some of these people, you can tell they're just eating terrible food, seed oils, all kinds of stuff. You can see this before and after pictures. Go look at people from the 50s and the people today. There, it's a different race. It's like a whole different race has been produced in 70 years. Fat, That's unbelievable. You look at a picture yeah. of a beach taken in 1950 and one now. Yeah. And and you, you, you this is an indictment of the AMA, the CDC, FDA. I mean, all of the everything. Yeah. Every yeah. all of these individuals and groups that brought about the toxicity and the effects. And if you look at how fat and weak people are, remember their minds have had the same result. Right. The body are not separate from the mind. They can't think clearly. You know. So I think that's probably the great MK Ultra of the whole society is that they've actually transformed society into something right. healthy, self-sustaining, into frail, pharmacological, wrecked. Everybody has a like a uh, health condition now. The kids do. Yeah. Half of them do. That's from vaccines, so also everything. And vaccines. And this whole vaccine thing that happened today exposed the whole fraud of the entire fax vaccine schedule. So oh, they've really? probably yeah. been gaming humanity. Or at least the U.S. for decades. Yes, absolutely. Well, they've, the they've who, caused ruined so many families and lives. Yeah. They are to all monsters, Gates, Fauci, everybody involved at the CDC and FDA. There has to be massive arrests because they've just been poisoning humanity. Like, like it was like a Nazi death camp for. Yeah, a long time. we're exactly right. Bad? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, Cameron, I got to take off. Um, Bill, thank you. It was a pleasure meeting yeah, you. Yeah, great talking with and, you. And congratulations yeah, on your books. They are thank really you. valuable. Um, and you. I hope that, uh, you know, they're they're widely read. I mean, they we, we need to have a really good exposure of all of the uh, mystical bamboozlement that we've been subjected to. I'm going to put a new addendum to Prophet of Evil with your name in it, both of you guys, for the Bish Ave. <laughs> the Bish Ave edition will go in there. So thank you. So you know I have little files where like my next I've already done three editions of Prophet of Evil. Wow. So and that's been 12 years. That's the benefit of self-publishing. But whenever I get newer information and stuff like that, I always try to add it in there just so it stands. I mean that's the really the beauty of books is that you cross time and space and people can pick it up and go, okay, that's what he was thinking at that time. That's right. They're brilliant. I ordered uh you, let's see the two involving Crowley, and they should be here uh, tomorrow. So I'm going to delve into those. And uh, uh, Joe, I, I think you guys have so much to share already, just right off the bat. You know, William shared that amazing image of the 33rd degree for Crowley, and uh, so I, I, that's my goal. No, is just to get people teamed up and supporting one another. And uh, in the future, if you wanted to discuss some of Joe's thesis regarding uh, the the Flavian hypothesis, absolutely, uh, he's sure. completely I'll, I'll discuss it. And um, um. You know, uh, we we are we have a real problem here in that we are being genocided, yeah. and the public is unaware of it. So I think all of the uh, research people, like ourselves, have this responsibility to be bold and energetic to try to get this information out. It's critical. Um, you know. Well, I've got my. I'm, I'm, I just did. You uploaded my thirty. 6th episode of my Bioweapon Blues series, so I've been trying to follow. I know, you're doing good. You really are doing good work. Wow. So At least the no people can check it out and follow up. Yeah. He'll be there. Yeah, hats off, sir. I, we'll talk soon, okay? All right, yeah. Keep okay. in touch. Thanks for the invite. Hi, Joe. Good Thank you. Both of you. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, just real quick. Can you quick, send me just... the audio? Can you send Absolutely. The audio? Yeah. Absolutely. I'll, I'll send you the audio. Send, uh, 
Send your links too. Send what you want linked in the show so people can find your other stuff. So send the audio with links and then I will upload that right away today. Sounds good. And you know, I uh I'm trying to do this thing of 